from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Today's guest is Matt Bateman, the Vice President of Pedagogy at Higher Ground Education, a global network of Montessori schools. Hello, Matt. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Super happy to be here. So, Matt, can you start us off by telling you what brought you to the field of education? Why is this a problem that you think is important you want to spend your life solving? This, this is depending on how you count careers. This is like probably my third career. Um, my, my most proximally recent career was, um, was in higher ed. Um, so I, I'm a philosophy PhD. I was a psychology professor. And I spent a lot of time in the university setting um, at UPenn and at Franklin and Marshall College, um, where I was a professor at this little liberal arts college, thinking about the education side of things, thinking about the psychology major, thinking about um, the pedagogy of like, what are we trying to do with these college students? Where are they come when kind of in what state do we get them? Where do we want them to go? Um, what is our role really as educators? Um, and and I think every educator at any level, like if you're like a high school educator who teaches, I don't know, math like calculus like you, like your thing is teaching calculus um inevitably at some point you're going to be like ah oh, if only those middle school teachers would teach pre-calculus right like i could do my job and if you're a middle school teacher you're going to be like if only those elementary school teachers would like get the basics of algebra right and like university professors have this too and that that um you get these students who are very bright very privileged or, or mine were um they have problems um and they're problems that are born of mostly of the traditional education system of kind of learning a certain kind of box checking mentality of the academic um, and kind of broader social emotional deficits that that system produces. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I got interested in that problem. Um, I was looking for a career change. One of my friends convinced me to check out Montessori, which I knew nothing about um, 10 years ago. And uh, I fell in love with it pretty quickly from there. And, and I never looked back. So that's, that's the kind of basic background intro. I mean, I've all, in, a, in a way, I've always been interested in education. It's wonderful. So how did you actually land at your current role at Higher Ground? Yeah, so I, I flew out to California in like 2012, um, 2013, saw Montessori School for the first time and um, really fell in love with it. Um, it was a kind of love at first sight thing for me. So in the early childhood classroom, the three to six classroom, all Montessori is mixed age. Um, the students were like, I, ha- I had a pretty happy childhood. So I have these memories in childhood of like building a dam in a creek or playing with Legos for hours and just being like super into what I was doing. And this was a classroom that looked like that. Like the students were into what they were doing. They were working and, um, and all in different things and in different ways. And, um, I've worked in preschools before. Like I, I, um, it's not like I have no experience in a preschool setting. I've worked in twos classrooms and threes classrooms and fours classroom and, and in pretty, pretty progressive experimental settings. You don't get that. Like even in progressive preschools, it's more like kids are like running around and playing. It's a little bit more chaotic. Like you don't get that kind of like deep flow state type thing that in this classroom seemed extremely normal. And then when I looked at the elementary classrooms so these older students, six, seven, eight, nine year olds, um, they were literally better critical thinkers than my college students. Um, so they could ask, they could say things like, I don't agree. Six-year-olds would say things like, I don't agree or disagree because I don't understand yet. And understanding is required for agreement. Or And they weren't just parroting something that an adult said. Um, or like the teacher would be introducing this, the geopolitics of Africa and dividing up the map. And the students would be like, why is the North smaller? 
Is it because it's next to Europe and, and Europe has some special significance for the north of Africa? Is this how the UN divides things? Like, what are other ways of dividing up Africa? Like, what, what premises are you bringing to this division? I mean, that wasn't quite how they put it, but they got like, I'm being introduced to a conceptual framework. I can ask questions of that framework. Like, some of them might be better or worse. And like, as a college professor, I'm just like, oh my God, this is all I want to introduce something awesome to my students, some philosophical principle or some idea from neuroscientists for them to be like, where does this idea come from? Like, what is the framework? And instead, all, all my students ask me, is this, this going to be on the test? And so um, and so I, I, I fell in love with it. And I'm trained as an intellectual historian. So I'm like, who is this Montessori woman? I'm going to read all of her books and all of her letters and all of her critics. And, um, and I did that. I mean, that's still ongoing. I haven't read literally everything that she's written, but I read a lot of what she wrote. And, um, and her critics. And I came out the other end of that process thinking this is a really underrated and understudied philosopher. I mean, I, uh, I'm a philosopher interested in the history of philosophy and psychology in the modern and late modern eras. I've studied psychology, developmental psychology, the history of developmental psychology. I have not really before 2012, 2013 come across Montessori. Um, and that too was striking to me. I'm kind of like drawn to heterodox kind of underground grassroots thinkers. So that, that was part of the appeal. And then I just started talking to people in the field, the people who showed me that Montessori classroom and others. And like, what is making this work? Um, you know, like, not like what, like what are the principles underlying this and out of those conversations, um, which we can talk about um, um, the, the kind of principles that emerged from those conversations was like, yeah, this is what we want to do. Um, we we want to do this. We want to get it right. We want something like Montessori inspired education, Montessori principle education, really grounded in Montessori principles at scale. So it's a getting it right. B bringing it to hopefully millions of students. Um, how do we make this into our life's work? And that, that moonshot was higher ground education, which was founded five years ago. And I've been part of that journey ever since. It's a great story. It's a great story. Montessori and many educational philosophers are grossly underrated. I, I won't say it's a, it's a conspiracy, but um, I don't think it's in many people's best interest to, uh, to highlight these thinkers. They're so, like you said, heterodox to, or at least how we think about how schooling should work today. Um, so let's talk more about what is higher ground. I know you said it's grounded in Montessori philosophy, but let's talk about um, how to, uh, so it's a network of schools. Um, what is your role in starting these schools? Are they um, are centrally owned? Do you have like, let's talk more about what heter- higher ground actually is. Yeah. So higher ground, the kind of skeleton of higher ground um, that, um, that we, that we spent um the, the first three or four years really focused on establishing is this network of brick and mortar schools. So like, like we're real schools, there's about 90 of them right now. Um, we open about 30 a year um, at this point. Um, so we've kind of accelerated our growth to the point where we're at now. So mostly in North America, we've got a handful in China, some opening up in Europe. Um, we're looking at Latin America, Africa, elsewhere. The schools are all Montessori schools. They start at birth three months old. My daughter started school recently. My, my one-year-old daughter um, started school when she was a few months old. Um, they go up through high school. Um, they're all wholly owned and operated by us. Um, we do have some partner schools in our network. That's a kind of separate thing that we're exploring and experimenting with, which I can I can talk more about. The skeleton is like these are our schools. These are our students. Um, they're they're kind of owned and operated by us and, and kind of fully managed by us. The mission is Montessori everywhere. So we've got about ten thousand students in the system. It's great. Um, we want more reach than that. 
um, and, and we're thinking a lot right now about how to take some of these components that we use to scale our own program. So how do you even get 90 schools? Well, it turns out that you need like an LMS and a curriculum that's like really modular and flexible. And you need to kind of really invest in developing that. You need teacher training. Um, we kind of we've internalized the whole teacher training function. Um, and that's where a lot of my time and attention goes is I'm a teacher trainer. I've kind of like come become a professor again, kind of through the back door. I, I work with um, I work with teachers. I, I do a lot of writing and, and speaking and thinking about what education is and, and teaching on, on that score. Um, but um, those are resources that apply to other kinds of contexts, to homeschooling contexts, home pods, virtual school, school partnerships. Um, we've looked into corporate care and to other kinds of international expansion. So, um, so we're really, really interested in applying these Montessori principles and the tools that we've developed to be pretty portable um, in, in non-standard contexts um, like, um, you know, the ones that we've all experienced over the last 18 months or so with COVID, for example. Um, so higher ground is all of that. It's kind of, it's a bunch of things rolled into one. Our schools, our early childhood and elementary schools are called guidepost schools. So if you go to guidepostmontessori.com, you can learn more about them. Our middle and high schools are called the academies of thought and industry. That's thoughtindustry.com. Our teacher training is prepared Montessorian. And soon we will be launching a, um, a kind of think tank which, which is going to take up a lot of my time and energy called Montessorium. So um, all of those things go under the umbrella of higher ground education. So we're pretty, pretty expansive um, for, for a five-year-old. That's exciting. That's oh, and what's my, what's my role in all of this? Um, so I've, I mean, I've been here since the beginning. I've done everything from IT support to fundraising, to talking to parents, to entering out of school. Um, over time, it's become more intellectual. I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm trained as a philosopher. That's where my heart really is. Um, I do a lot of, um, arguing, writing, speaking, like what exactly is our position, both in general, just like what is our answer to the questions, the perennial questions of education? What is the history of education? How do we fit into it? What about hot button topics like um, identity and diversity in education? Like, like what's our view on that? Um, those are the things that I work most directly on. I also do a lot of um, a lot of teacher training on on the theory of our education and educational philosophy. We'll have to schedule a separate conversation to talk about all those things. I'll restrain myself and keep us from going down that rabbit hole. But okay. can you talk us talk um, to the audience about why is Montessori still relevant in 2021? It's been over 100 years. What was that, 19 or 19 teen something that, that Montessori method is published? So why should we still care about these ideas in 2021? So Montessori was part of this wave of thinkers um, that included both educators, like in the U.S., John Dewey is the, is the kind of best known example. Um, and then also, but also scientists and psychologists, um, people like Freud, both Sigmund and Anna Freud, um, and, and the, the early developmentalists in Europe, um, who, who started who started taking advantage of the fact that we, we had the emerging tools of social science um, the emerging kind of wealth of nations. Um, I mean, the world was getting much wealthier and that part of what happens is that people are then freed up to think about childhood in the juvenile period in a, in a more um, optimized way and less desperate way. Um, and so there were all these forces converging to kind of think fresh about early childhood. And Montessori was part of that part of that wave of thinking. Um, she was the one amongst the developmentalists and educators. She was the one who um, really did the most... <laughs> detailed pedagogical work um, in early childhood. So she really got her hands dirty in terms of um, iterating over and over and over again on these early childhood models and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't it. And she was a great theorist. Um, so so she, she, for reasons that 
I don't, I mean, I've read multiples of her biographies. I think she, she kind of is naturally um, a philosopher and a mathematician and a scientist and a theorist in a certain way. Um, and so that combined with her like really maniacal engineering focus on kind of getting, getting these early childhood environments. Right. Um, and she's, this is part of the reason why like that combination, that kind of fresh first principles, philosophical thinking, um, which really inspires me most more than anything combined with like, she would like, I mean, what got her attention in the, in the world is that she taught three and four year olds how to read and write. And all the other progressive educators, like, like from Rousseau to Dewey to Froebel to all these other thinkers, like they didn't have that kind of practical success. She like really nailed it at these early ages in terms of, yes, it's a learning environment where children are free to do things and we treat them with respect and it's a wonderful community. And, oh, and also their math and their reading and writing are actually better than what the aristocrats are getting. And, and like people were just like, what? Like, how did you do that? And so it's, it's that combination of kind of philosophy and practical system making that I think really put Montessori on the map. Um, why is she relevant today? I mean, she, she, I mean, part of the relevance is um, kind of the the staying power of Montessori is almost like constitutive of the relevance. So the fact that it's been 114, 15 years um, since she did her initial classroom, um, pretty quickly after she started her work by in, in the 1930s, there were Montessori schools all over the globe. Like really, like you can look at a map. It's amazing. It's like you know, fifty cities um, had, had had Montessori schools. People were coming to Rome to hear a lecture, um, going and setting up their own Montessori programs, and they were getting Montessori visited a lot of these places. They were getting the same results. Like it works in Uganda. It works in Shanghai. There's something about the system that's truly workable and universal. And and insofar as it didn't work, that was that that was kind of like troubleshot, you know, like troubleshooted, troubleshot. I don't know what the past tense of troubleshoot is. Um, and, and that kind of, and it became part of the system and became kind of cycled back and became part of her training and her lectures and her methodology and her publications as to how the curriculum should work. How many other systems of alternative education have 114 years of practical validation? I mean, that's part of it. Um, but the real answer for me is, um, it's at the level of philosophy and principles. So um, I think what you see in education I even saw this at the college level is that there's two really two poles, two kind of attractor basins, two local local maxima, local minima, I don't local maxima that people kind of get sucked into. Um, so one is the old one, the the three thousand year old one, which is like you need to learn stuff. There's a kind of cultural core of stuff that you need to know literacy, math, and like whatever your culture thinks is important. Like for the Greeks, that was like Homer and Hesiod and and some some musical instruction, some physical ed. The cutting edge for them was like Euclid, like constructive geometry, like whoa, like like that was their STEM, right? But it got incorporated into education pretty quickly. And then you kind of, it was a little bit different for the Romans. It was a little bit different for but kind of by the time you get to the Middle Ages, it's more liturgical. Um, scholastic. Um, there's more astronomy, less mathematics. So, so what the core is shifts, but the kind of basic idea is there's stuff that you need to know. I um, mean, for us today, that's like the three R's, some sciences, um, you know, probably some history and some literature, and then you go to college. Like it's like what is the core? What is the you know the kind of common core? And then there's um, progressive education, which is like project-based learning, learning how to learn, curiosity, like screw all that common core stuff. Like you can figure that out as you go. Like this is about lifelong learning. And that really emerged in the late 19th century. And Montessori was kind of, um, in a sense, part of that, part of that movement, part of that way, part of that rethink of education. And um, both of these schools of thought, classical and progressive, have devastating critiques of the other that are correct. 
Um, and, and you see educators swing between them. Like what, like what you see in practice in K-12 is like um, people who are like, screw all that content stuff. Like I want my kids to love learning. I'm going to do project-based learning. And then six months into the school year, they're like, oh my God, my kids aren't actually learning anything. Um, and I, maybe I should do some standardized testing or common core. Or you see the opposite. It's like, screw all that. Like I, no, no excuses. Like my kids are going to learn stuff. They're going to be set up for success. And then six months into the school year, you're like, oh my God, my kids hate me. And they hate school, and maybe I should do some project-based learning. And and so you get this swing back and forth, and that's the problem that Montessori solves in early childhood. It is very, very child-centered. Um, um, children are in in these rooms for hours a day, making their own decisions about what to do. They are driving the activity. They're moving around. They don't have to ask permission for things. It's very, it's, a, it's like famously child-centered, and it's so structured. Like the environment is hyper-structured. Um, the structure doesn't come from assignments and the teacher telling you what to do. It comes from shaping the environment and the culture in a certain way. And so she's figured out how to have high structure, high autonomy education in a way that produces independence in a way, like not just like people who do what they want, but people who are capable of doing what they want. It's, it's the kind of skill structure and the inner discipline, the maturity. And that's the thing that... Um, I don't think anybody else gets it right quite like Montessori. I mean, there are a lot of educators and philosophers of education who are kind of dealing with this issue and grappling with it and trying to solve it. But um, in Montessori, the three district classroom, she just nails this issue. And um, and what we want to do is like, that's what we want in high school and like everywhere. Like, how do we kind of take that high structure, high autonomy education, like agency equals autonomy plus structure. Like that's our view um, and kind of implement it everywhere. And that's, that's Montessori principles. I think it's timeless. I think it's always relevant. So... That's something we, we like to say that at Sora, we've quote unquote stolen the best um, philosophies and the best practices from each uh, type of school. But that's one of the things that I think Montessori is very instructive for us. These, this concept of a prepared environment, you know, how, how can we allow autonomy while still directing um, um, or at least avoiding maladaptive behaviors? Um, so our solution to this is we and we've thought a lot how can you create a prepared environment online right really really tough mm-hmm. problem um but what we've thought which is very montessorian is um let's provide like five or six great options to students right in almost every avenue um and let them choose, let them choose. But there's some things that I've found to be very interesting. This is a bit of a rabbit hole, but this time I'll indulge myself. Uh, I've seen many Montessori educators say, um, you know, this, this need fulfillment concept, and they expand this to, oh, they're completely ignoring the lesson and they took their mom's phone and, and they've been playing on it all day. Is that a need, is that a, a need though they're fulfilling? Where do you think you fall on that spectrum of, I, I guess, redirecting behaviors versus peer um, student directed behavior? I mean, it's, it's a little bit different at different ages, but at the younger ages, it is um, the Montessori environment is very constrained. Um, and so the, so the choices that you're making and the kind of things that you're operating within are, are like, in, in a sense, they've been kind of pruned and pre-selected for you. Um, and now within that, within those constraints, you have you have lots and lots of freedom. This is the Montessori notion of freedom with elements. I think it's similar to what, like a, a kind of thing that parents sometimes do. Like this is, this is like a parenting Jedi mind trick is instead of saying like, are you ready to get into the car, you know, for school? Like, are you ready for school? Like, instead of doing that, you're like, would you like to get into the car yourself or would you like me to help you? Like, you kind of present them with two choices, both of which funnel them in a certain direction. That kind of thing, not that narrow. I think it was just that narrow. It would be kind of like more of an illusion and more manipulative, like, because students really can work on anything. Um, but um, um, 
anything in terms of like the disciplines at school and the kind of academics and, and the kinds of project research projects that might flow from that. But um, they can't play video games all day. And, um, and, and that is something that we don't, we, we don't set up the environment to enable that. And if that was coming up, like in a virtual environment or an at home environment, that's something that we would want to, um, that we would want to get in front of, or at least understand better. Um, I agree with you. I think this is a flashpoint issue for many Montessori educators, and perhaps people could argue they're not real Montessori educators in, in this respect, but um, people will say, or educators, Montessori educators um, may say, oh, they've been sitting under a chair and avoiding lessons all day. Well, they're fulfilling their need for safety, right, and security. Clearly, they're not getting that at home or, or something like this, but couldn't that argument also be applied to, oh, they're playing a video game all day. They're getting their need, filling that need for exploration and, and self-directed behavior. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think that you have to, I do think that you have to ask questions about what does this child need, but you also have to ask questions about whether these things actually fulfill them or whether they're like illusions or crutches. Like, so people need to feel a sense of efficacy and video games give you a sense of efficacy. Might there be problems with that fact? Um, you know, like, like that, like the, the, I mean, or, um, um, the kinds of safety that a child needs, like, does the child need the safety of kind of like being in a bubble? Or does the child need what the child really needs to, to experience the safety is learning to manage risk? And is what the child's doing going to lead him to learning to manage risk? And if not, how can we inspire that behavior and set up an environment for him to do that? So um, I think asking questions about need is great, but like you can't assume that what the child is doing is going to fulfill that need. Well that's said. Why we're, yeah, that's why we're very well said. That's, that's why you need parents and educators and adults. Like I, I don't <laughs> think that um, I don't think that if you just kind of turn children loose. Um, that um, that they'll naturally get what they need. I mostly asked because many people, at least in the early days of, of Sora, misinterpreted our intent and we attracted a lot of unschooling families, right? And I think, yep. I mean, perhaps educate, different educational philosophies can work for different types of students. I'm perfectly willing to accept that. But I think many people, like educational philosopher... Zach Stein, I believe, calls it cognitive maturity fallacy. It's like many people forget that there are developmental milestones that kids need to reach before making these sort of decisions for themselves. Um, so we find that redirecting behavior, many of these are flashpoint issues that I think are just mis misunderstood. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that I think that that I think that it's a deep issue. I would like to see alternative educators actually disagree over this topic more like 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 what do you think of unschooling like is it going too far or not and if it if it is like what's wrong with it if it's not like why aren't you just doing something like that like what are the actual principles of human development involved um and um i mean the, the kind of controversial thing in montessori is um freedom is not an end in itself like fr freedom is a condition it's a necessary condition for certain kinds of things but the point is not freedom um the point is work and then, and then, like cashing that out, understanding like what does Montessori mean by work? Is that like having a thankless job where you're going through a bunch of tasks? No, it's not that. But it's also not play. It's also not like it's not the same thing as like pretending to have a tea party and like like work, work means something very specific in Montessori. And you've got to be bought into that as a as a kind of parent or as a teenager if you're older um, for the system to work. And and there's a lot of alignment that we do around that. And and that is that is something that I mean. People criticize Montessori for this. People used to, people still do, um, and that those are debates worth having. Right, certainly. So I'll, I'll put a cap on that rabbit hole, although okay. <laughs> like four or five questions came to mind as you were saying that. Um, I have to ask you, you tweeted something recently that 
Um, <laughs> I'm not going to let you say it without <laughs> defending it here. So I apologize, okay. Okay. but you recently tweeted and I found it fascinating. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Bloom's taxonomy and Gardner's multiple intelligences. You said we're all either, I believe you said wrong or heavily flawed or I, I forget what verbiage you used. Um, could you expound upon that a little bit for the listeners? Okay. So sure. So, so, um, let me think about how to do this in, a, in an efficient manner. Um, so there are these, so in education, particularly kind of in ed schools, like if you kind of go and get an education degree of one, of one sort or another, there are a handful of ideas that come from educational research or educational psychology or educational theorizing um, that kind of, that, that really dominate the field. And, um, and some of them, and three of the more popular ones are the ones that I just referenced. So, so Maslow's hierarchy, you've probably even heard of it. Like you've probably seen meme versions of it. So like at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy is like physical safety. Like, like, are you okay? Like, do you have food? And then like you get, you start to travel up the hierarchy and it's like, do you have a sense of social belonging? And then at the very top of the hierarchy, it's like self-actualization. And the idea is at least, so you can argue that this is not what Maslow himself said. Um, and people did argue with me about this on Twitter. So, so I don't want to put this idea to Maslow, but how this, how this idea gets used in education is like, you've got to kind of go from the bottom up. So you have to kind of ensure that your students are like safe and physically okay. And then from there, let me actually pull up the hierarchy because I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, um, physiological needs, food, water, warmth, and then you address their safety needs and then you address their belonging. And then you can get to something like self-esteem, honor, a feeling of accomplishment, and then you can get to a life of meaning. Um, and it kind of happens in that order. Um, so that's Maslow's hierarchy. And and I, I mean, I just... I think that the that set of things. First of all, that's not. I don't think that that's a great set of needs. Like if you just enumerate it, like physiological needs, safety needs, belonging, esteem, self actualization. There's all sorts of. There's like a need for cognition, a need to understand, a need to um, have a material impact on the world around you, um, a need to collaborate. There's all sorts of things that don't fit easily into these buckets. I just think as an educator, as a parent, as a caretaker, like there's never an excuse for not doing all of them at once. Like it, it's just a mistake to say. We can't get to self-actualization because we don't have belonging yet. Um, like all of these things are important. They all integrate. Like I, I think like like you like if anything, I think it's like dangerous to find kind of a sense of social meaning before you have a sense of who you are and self-esteem. There, there's ways that if you prioritize things in this order, things go really wrong. And so I just think you need to think about it as a vertically integrated slice. So that that's and and whatever Maslow, maybe that might be what Maslow thought, but that's not how it's used in education and by educational schools. It's like usually it's like, how can you expect these kids to learn? They don't even have a lunch yet. I mean, that's the kind of standard line that you hear, but there are other forms of it too. And in my mind, it's just like, you've got to solve all those. Like, that's your job as an educator is to solve all those problems at once. Um, it's not to solve them in order. And I try not to make it a habit to explain the philosophy in which someone's an expert in. So I'll, I apologize yeah. in advance if, if this is way no, off. But I feel like that's a common interpretation amongst Montessori educators. They're following this, you know, Maslow's or Piaget idea that you need to go in order. But I, I find myself much more fond of like of a Gottskian idea of, you know, the zone of proximal development. You need to push students sometimes. And oftentimes, perhaps it's just a failure in implementation, but oftentimes I feel like educators are justifying for why they shouldn't push kids to excel. Yeah, I mean, you should always be pushing. I mean, the, the question in Montessori education done right is what cha what is challenging the student right now? And they sh there should always be something that is within their reach, but hard and interesting for that reason. 
Um, and and Vygotsky's notion of the zone of proximal development, I think, captures that really well. It's a very useful. Um, I have to go back and read Vygotsky, and I actually don't know what people have done with that concept um, over the last, you know, several decades. Um, um, but how Vygotsky used it, it's an incredibly useful um, lens and metaphor. It's the things that the student can't quite do on their own, but could do in the right with the right scaffolding. And Vygotsky thought of that scaffolding as primarily social, but you could also extend it to the environment or or other kinds of support. So so what can the child do if you kind of set them up the right way? And what's at the edge of the child's ability and how can you make that interesting and inspiring and accessible for them? Um, yeah, that's a really useful concept and that's a really useful way to think about it. Um, so, so Bloom's taxonomy of learning, um, it's, um, I mean, part of the challenge with Bloom's taxonomy is, is like, what does this even mean that you have a taxonomy? Is it supposed to be that you start with the bottom things and you go to the top things? So it, so it's, you start at the bottom with like memorization, like, do you get the basic facts? Um, and then once you get the basic facts, it's like, can you make sense of them? Can you understand them? Is there like a causal structure there? Um, and then you get to application. Can you do anything with that? Then eventually you get to analysis and evaluation. And then finally, at the very end, it's creation. And um, I've seen people, this this taxonomy is just, um, I think Bloom probably would concede that the, what the taxonomy is is a little bit incoherent. Um, I, I know a little bit more about the research here. Um, um, it's not supposed to be empirical. It's supposed to be heuristic. Um, people take it as like, yeah, you start with the facts and you memorize it and eventually you build up the creativity. I've seen progressive educators argue that you invert this structure. It's like a strict inversion of Bloom's taxonomy. Like start with creation and then evaluate. And then like, like eventually you can work your way up to like getting into the nitty gritty and memorizing things and, 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 um, and kind of um, getting the details into your head. Um, the reality is I just, I don't think that this is the right way to understand learning structures and there are other ways to understand learning structures that are better. Um, so, um, the, um, theorists that work on kind of more inductive discovery learning, conceptually based inquiry, um, including CBI conceptual based inquiry, including Montessori, even including somebody like Bruner, who I didn't, I don't think had, um, an inductive structure in mind exactly, but it's like, look, you start from what you know. And you kind of nuance that or problematize that and learn a little bit more. And then you spiral back. And, and it's this kind of it, it's a spiral because you keep returning to the same structures over time and kind of making them more and more sophisticated rather than it just like a progression. Um, all of those are better ways to understand learning. I don't think like start with memorize and end with create. And in the middle is application, whatever the hell that means. Um, I just don't think it's that helpful. Um, so and, and again, this is like relied up. This is a very popular idea. It's one of the things that kind of you, you walk away with in teachers' colleges. Um, should I pause there or should I go on to a, should I go on to a... No, you, you reminded me of something, which was recently I read um, Schopenhauer's On Education. Um, yeah. And in many ways, I it was reminiscent of like... Wittgensteinian is it? Is that how you Wittgensteinian, uh, uh, Wittgensteinian thought of... You need, like you're saying, cons- um you need people to experience things. It's almost like that that inversion of Bloom's taxonomy. First of all, I'll say I'm mad at everyone for not telling me Schopenhauer wrote on education. But anyway, um, he just wrote a little bit. Didn't he just, he just a wrote few, a little bit. It's like five pages. pages. I'm yeah. so frustrated. Yeah. No one's told me this until three weeks ago. Well, I had to find it three weeks ago. Um, but I just find that to be such so much more compelling of an idea. And upon reflection, thinking about, about our own lives, that is, I mean, Dewey would probably agree with this, where it's much more about collecting experiences and reflecting upon them than memorizing, you know, facts and fragments and then hoping that those uh, constitute, you know, a holistic understanding. If you put enough pieces together, that does not seem 
it's almost like you have to have a fuzzy image of things and then focus on individual aspects. That's the only way you can you can tie them together. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the deepest questions of education are questions of kind of ethics and epistemology. And within, and within the realm of epistemology, the kind of the question, especially that's relevant for education, is what is the relationship between abstract concepts and, and sensory experience? And that um, there's this whole tradition, um, these, these competing traditions in early modern philosophy that culminated in Kant, who says that, yes, like there are these two fonts of knowledge, concepts and percepts. Um, and they're kind of they're kind of independent of one another in a certain way. They have to mix, um, and, and you don't get knowledge unless you mix them. But they're they're two fonts of knowledge with with two sources. And Schopenhauer's reacting against that idea. He says he's he's like no, like you gotta you gotta ground your abstractions and experience in a certain way. And if and if you don't do that, if you just listen to your elders and get words and concepts and ideas apart from your experience, you're just gonna end up with a hodgepodge of ideas that you don't really know how to apply and that don't really mean anything to you. And you're gonna try to kind of like reconstruct what it might mean in experience over, over the course of your life and you'll never end up at wisdom. Um, and Dewey is grappling with something similar. Um, um, all educators, I think, are really grappling with something similar. And and I think part of, part of Montessori's genius is that she saw how to actually in detail and construct a more empiricist, I don't think that's quite the right word to use, but empiricist conceptual epistemology, such that you can have learning materials that allow you to directly experience certain kinds of abstract concepts, even before you're ready for them, which prepares the mind to kind of understand those structures later. And so it's this whole discovery learning sequence starting when you're very, very young, starting when you're like one year old. Um, and um, and that I think that that's the kind of thing that Schopenhauer had in mind. It's hard to know. He just has this one little essay, but um, you can, he's on, that's what he's on about. And I think that that's, that's an important idea. And I, I just to get it back to Bloom's taxonomy, that is not what Bloom's taxonomy is on about. And, and that's really my criticism of it. It's just like, where's the kind of learning structure here? Completely agree. Completely agree. Okay. The last one, let's complete the cycle. Gardner's multiple intelligences. <laughs> okay. So Gard, Gardner's multiple intelligences. Um, okay. So how this actually, how this issue actually usually comes up in, in education is, a, is in a concept called learning styles. And um, the idea is um, pretty, whatever you think you know about learning styles, the idea of learning styles is probably kind of stronger and bolder than you're thinking it is. It's not like, it's not like I like listening to audiobooks and podcasts more than I like reading. It, it's like, this is the, this is like fundamental to how you learn. Like different people learn via different sensory streams in a really kind of profoundly disparate way. And we need to kind of cater our, 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 our methods and our learning to this. So the entire math scope and sequence might look different for somebody um, with, with one kind of learning style than another kind of learning style with like an auditory learning style, for example, um, than, than more of a visual learning style or more of an analytical learning style. And the criticism in learning styles is like our education system is, is too gauged to the analytic and not gauged enough to the um, kind of physical, sensory, oral, whatever, whatever, creative, whatever you think the other learning styles are. So um, so that's not what Gardner said exactly. Um, Gardner um, Gardner's famous for saying that intelligence isn't one thing. So um, it's not just that there's this like general mental speed and acuity, IQ, G, psychologists call it different things. Um, um, he actually thinks that there's a lot of different things going on. And I, I don't know the theory as well. So let me just Google it real quick and pull up, pull up the example. So musical kinesthetic. I don't even know if this is what Gardner said, but this is how it gets interpreted. Interpersonal, linguistic, mathematical, naturalistic, um, intrapersonal, visual, musical. So, so all these different kinds of intelligence that I, instead of having this one thing, that's a bunch of things that, that intelligence gets broken into. 
I think that intelligence is basically one thing. Um, and, um, and, and so for, forget about intelligence in the sense of what's your natural smarts? Are you smart or not? What's your IQ? But just like, how thoughtful are you? Um, um, what, how intentional are you? How much interdiscipline do you have? What, like, do you have a kind of cognitive mode that you can deploy in a variety of circumstances? Um, or is it more limited? Or is it like, yeah, you've got people smarts, but you can't think about things or, or whatever it is. Um, it, you don't want us, like as an educator, a parent, a caretaker, you do not want to seed compartmentalization um, unless you really have to, unless there's something something kind of going really askew. I mean, different people do have different strengths and weaknesses, but I think you should treat it as one thing. Your goal for your for your students is that they can think their way through life. Not some aspects of life, not the aspects of life that they're naturally drawn to, but like all of life that they can, they can think about and grapple with and be intentional about. And that is something that I think that education can train. And the reason why I think that education can train it is because it is all interrelated. It's not siloed into a bunch of different compartments and you have to train these muscles separately. Um, it's compatible with specialization, but there is such a thing as a kind of general thoughtfulness and ability to navigate the world. And, and that, that is, that is, I think the proper goal of education. Um, so I just, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a lump or not a splitter. I, I, I don't, I mean, I think this is compatible with saying, yeah, of course you have different interests. And of course, like, of course you can kind of go down rabbit holes and we want students to like specialize and become musicians and like develop those talents. But like, you don't want like precisely what you don't want is somebody who's like a great analytic legal mind whose marriage falls apart when he's 40. Like that's not what we're shooting for as educators. And to me, any kind of move towards compartmentalization um, is is uh, that's that the litmus test that it has to pass is like is that what you're doing? Interesting. That's not the direction I thought you were going to take that in, but that's a <laughs> that's a super interesting argument. Um, <laughs> I always thought of multiple. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, was going to say I, mean, I, I always thought yeah, about at least how I tried to explain the concept of learning styles because I mean there's not much research to support this, although everyone believes it is simply how can we connect knowledge uh to your context or like the, how you value learning how you value experience in the world how can we make learning feel more relevant to that although you're not going to gain much computational power you might you might by changing the learning style you may gain uh staying power right you may increase someone's motivation or curiosity by connecting this to an avenue in which they enjoy but it's not like you simply can't understand visual concepts like oh that's absurd for anyone who really thinks about it exactly exactly i mean that's the standard critique and i totally agree with that critique so so i i um you have to contextualize to your students. Um, every every single learner has their own context, and there is no such thing as learning that doesn't stem from a particular context and a particular person putting an effort to connect a new item of information to that particular context, and the teacher should be sensitive to that. That is 100% true, um, and it's also 100% true that that has very little to do with what people talk about with learning styles. Um, like, it, it's not, like, how that works is, like, you have a whole co cognitive context and context of knowledge. It's not that your context is that you can't process things analytically. You can only process things orally or something like that. That's, that's just not how people differ. If I think it's important for you to learn, um, I don't know, the law of universal gravitation as Newton understood it. You don't want kind of five fundamentally different tracks. You want one track that really explains that concept. And then you want different ways to connect students to that, to that track. Um, I mean, basically that, that, that's, that's, I think the right way to think about it. Makes sense. Okay. So we, we talked a lot today about, 
idealism, I'll say, <laughs> how should, if we could design an education system from the ground up, what should it look like? And I think in many respects, that is both the mission of Sora and that's the mission of higher ground. <laughs> so we do actually have the luxury to do that. But talking to traditional educators, right? Talking to people who exist in perhaps a public school classroom, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about that traditional system, what would you spend that wish on? I mean, this is, I'm going to, I have an, a cheat answer because, um, so, so, the, so the one thing I'm going to pick is mixed age classrooms. So right now in traditional schools, the normal thing is like you're in kindergarten with a bunch of five-year-olds and then you're in first grade with a bunch of six-year-olds and then you're in second grade with a bunch of seven-year-olds and so on and so forth. And in Montessori and not just Montessori and in a lot of kind of um, alternative approaches, there are broader bands, um, three-year bands, six-year bands even, um, students of different ages interacting with one another. Um, that is the ma- I think that is the magic thing that I would change. And why it's a cheap answer is that there is no way to make that work unless you fundamentally change the other surrounding pedagogical structures. So, so part, part of the reason why, why it's so powerful is like, once you've got um, a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old in the same class together, you just can't do like 45 minutes of group instruction. Next thing, 45 minutes of group instruction, it doesn't work. It has to be more individualized to the student's context. And when the teacher is teaching in a way that's individualized to one student's context, so I'm over here with these three students, let's say I'm an elementary teacher, and there's 20 other students in the classroom, they have to be able to do their own thing. And so you need a kind of pedagogical system and structure that enables them to work independently and productively. So it's a kind of cheat answer. But um, but but I mean, it is like mixed age. School is the only time in your life when you are with everybody's within one year of one another, it's ridiculous. It's artificial. It, it kind of induces a certain kind of neuroticism and competition about comparison. Um, it, you're, you're, you're limiting your social resources in terms of like naturally being around people who are very different from you. And age is a great way to get people who are different from you, who know more, who know less, who can be leaders, who can be followers, who can, um, you can inspire, who you can be inspired by. Um, there's a cycle that you go through as a human being, like in anybody that's, like been an adult and like worked in an office and been promoted over time and has gone from kind of like, you know, like starting level employee to like having a manager and onboarding new employees. Like there's a cycle to these things and it's part of the human experience and it should be part of school. Um, so that's the one thing that I would change. There's a, sure. I could pick another, Go for one, another one <laughs> but that, that, I mean, if, yeah, I mean, okay. So here's another one. This one is a little bit less um, mixed ages. Like that's been my standard answer to that question. Not that people go around asking me that question a lot, but it's like, you know, in, in 50 years, I would like to see like most classrooms be mixed age. That would be a good metric of success for alternative education. Here's a more recent one um, that I've been mulling, um, and part, partly through thinking through Brian Kaplan's work. We just read um, that as a company book club, by the way. <laughs> Case against education. Yeah. So Brian Kaplan has this book called the, called the Case Against Education, which is like for educators who are just like, why? Um, but um, but it's a really, really interesting book. I think that teenagers, basically my, my the view that I'm coming to is that teenagers need to work, not at school, not school work, but they, they need that too, but they should have a job or if not a traditional job where they're like going and making money, like I, I had jobs as, you know, I mowed lawns. I worked when I got a little bit older, I worked, I worked a, a cash register at Toys R Us. Like I, I've done those things, I think. And I think that the, those are the kinds of things that I have in mind. And I think that they're good, but also internships or um, 
like it's 2021 like you can go and build a youtube audience that's not a school audience for your for your paper but like a real audience and how many people can you get um the full range of things that you can do as an adult um a lot of them you can kind of start to do as a teenager and um part of what's happened over the last 50 or 60 years is that school has just become all consuming like and very very scheduled I mean, the normal thing is that teenagers sit at a desk for eight hours a day in this highly scheduled routine and their extracurriculars are also scheduled for them and they're pretty they're pretty artificial. Um, and you end up doing school things and not real things. And that's that's the state that you enter college in. And um, hopefully you get to do some real things in college, but not all college students do. Just the, the more I the more I get into um, the more I think about like what are we doing here as educators? Like what is our goal? Kind of having a school that's really more part-time when you're a teenager and interfacing that with real opportunities, not in a committed way. It's not like you're signing up for a life of babysitting or retail, but like trying different things out that are real where you actually have to learn the skills. You're kind of building that vocational sense, that entrepreneurial sense into your soul. And you're still studying. You're still kind of connecting with others about it. It's still a developmental fate. Like you're not an adult yet. You're a teenager. Um, so, that, so I think that education still does have a role to play in kind of integrating that and, um, and, and scaffolding that and continuing to teach you, teach you the kinds of skills that you need. Um, that are a little bit more abstract and, and a little bit more future oriented, but at the same time, like do, do, do real things. Like there's no reason to delay that until you're 22. Um, and in fact, there are good reasons to not delay it until when you're 22. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if waving that wand means that, that just like you spend half the time in school that you have, which is why I thought of Brian Kaplan because his, his whole point is not get rid of school. It's like have less of it. Like that, that's his argument. There's too much. Um, and I'm, that, that's how I've kind of become sympathetic to that argument. It's like, what else could you be doing with this time? I love that. I love that. An answer. I usually give similar answers, but on the train of, of Brian Kaplan, I think his hypothesis that we just need more trade work, like not just for the dumb kids, quote unquote, which is how many educators talk about it, but, um, it's a problematic word. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting them. Um, but also for everyone just to experience some form of efficacy. Like I made a thing. How often do people really get that experience in a traditional program? I know I didn't until I even, so I did computer science in college, even in computer science, I really got to make things, but that's what drew me to the field because when I got to work on my own things, I got to make impactful things that actually helped people. And that was the first time I'd experienced in 13 plus years of school of actually creating something that's not just a contrived activity a teacher told me to do, right? So um, I just think that his hypothesis, Brian Kaplan's hypothesis, um, is on the nose that we just need more classes teaching us how to do real things. Yeah, and, uh, and opportunities outside of classes. Um, so um, Montessori is great on this topic. I mean, she she thought that middle school students should go and live on a farm and work with their hands. Yeah. Um, I know that's her hypothesis, too. I know she didn't work write that much about older years, but I know that was her hypothesis as well. Yeah, and, and there, are, there are other people, too, like um, like Mike Rowe, the kind of dirty jobs guy. It's just like, go and work with your hands. And um, and again, the, the goal, I, I don't think that the goal is strictly vocational training. Like, that's not the point here. The point here is... Um, but I also don't think that the goal of learning, learning, um, the goal of learning Newton's three laws of motion is not that you know the three laws of motion or become an engineer. It's that it does something to your soul, to your mind, to your character, and that's how I think educators should be thinking about work opportunities. It's like, what is it like? Like, work is an important part of life. How are we? It's not just a way to make money. Um, how are we thinking about that? How are we thinking about that in terms of the characters of our students? Like, what is the way to approach 
some of these vocational questions and economic questions in a way that really speaks to the more liberal arts side of education and, and kind of what it does to the character of education. And this, I think this is one of these perennial unsolved problems in education. So I'm very, very interested in kind of things and structures that help us help us solve this. I find it hilarious that the typical retort to that proposal is you're just training kids to be producers, you know, human, human cap, reductive human capital theory, like that, that's what everyone's retort, but do they forget that no matter what economic system, if we're taking it to that level, we're operating under production is going to be a reality of life for a long time. So yeah, that's something I usually like to talk to parents about if they have this concern, which isn't that many parents, luckily, because we have a big emphasis on what we call project tracks at Sora, which is you're going to work with an industry advisor in your creation of a project. Um, and it's just, you're going to have to create things no matter where you go. It's not about telling students that the purpose of education is for a job. Because I think, much like you, education is so much more than that. But like you said, this is just a reality of life. No matter what economic system, no matter what your life turns out to look like. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's like, I think it's like, I think work, I mean, this is, I'm pulling this from Montessori. I mean, this is earlier in the conversation where I was like, Montessori thinks that work is important even for young children. This this is part of what she had in mind. Um, work is at the same level as art or friendship or like it is, it is, it's not just like a necessity and you have to do it. It's like part, it's actually part of life. It's, it's a source of meaning. It's how we survive, not just kind of make by, but thrive and, and kind of like build a civilization together and, um, and um, do things like, fight off a global pandemic and figure out new ways to combat entropy and, and figure out new ways of kind of experiencing luxury and the joys of life. And like all, all, all of these things that work has kind of infinite forms and, um, and it is totally possible to be alienated from all work. And it's a tragedy in the same way that it's a tragedy um, that you can be alienated from human relationships or just not, not be that good at experiencing art and your tastes in art are kind of like pretty pulpy and you never get that, that much of a, like, this is part, one of the things that education needs to optimize for is um, how do you make sure that you have a life of meaningful, joyous work? And that is not, it doesn't just happen. Um, but for most people, it never happens. And it's not because they don't find the right job. It's because there's something wrong with how they're thinking about it and approaching it. And, and, and there's something wrong with how their kind of minds and souls are like keyed to the issue of work. And that's something that educators can definitely help with and work on. Well said. Well, with that, I'll end it with that thought. Um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to learning more about Sora. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sora's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.